When we reminisce about our time in school, what tends to stand out are major occasions. Victories on the sports field, the senior prom, field trips, and other more personal events that aroused strong emotions. Which leads many teachers to think that the best way to support enduring learning is to make their lessons similarly memorable. That idea would seem to make perfect sense. The only problem is, it's a myth. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Claire Seeley, a longtime primary school teacher and head of school in London, who now serves as head of curriculum and standards for the states of Guernsey and blogs at primarytimery.com. She's also the author of the new article, The Best Way to Help Children Remember Things, Not Memorable Experiences, which is available now at educationnext.org. Claire, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me here. It's great to be speaking with you. So I should mention that your article is an excerpt from a new book, The Research Ed Guide to Education Myths, just published by John Cat International. And if our website traffic is any indication, the excerpt seems to have struck a chord with readers. The myth you set out to bust is that memorable events provide the template for creating memorable lessons. And you argue that the key to understanding why that's a myth is to recognize that there are two different types of memory. So what are those types of memory and how do they differ? Yeah, I mean, as, as you said, it, it's really understandable why any of us would think that, but it, it's based on a misunderstanding about these two types of memory. So we have these two types of memory. We have episodic memory. So if you think about the words episodes, episodic, it's that's our autobiographical memory, the memory of our everyday memory that just happens. You don't consciously think, oh, what did I have for breakfast? What did I have for lunch? You just you just know that stuff. You just sort of remember it. But it's a very sort of easy come, easy go kind of memory. So you'll remember what you had for, for lunch, you know, yesterday maybe or a couple of days ago. But if I said, what did you have for lunch on March the 19th? Yeah, you probably don't remember. It's very unlikely to remember. So that's episodic memory. And then the other kind of memory is semantic memory. And that's uh, memory that is more tightly organized and it takes effort. So uh, you need to sort of think about things in order to actually remember them in your semantic memory. Uh, one thing you could think about is, you know, if you had been driven around somewhere, like maybe when you were a kid, you didn't really attend to how you got somewhere. So you may, if it's a journey did lots you may remember you may not but it's only when you started driving yourself and you actually have to remember the route that's when you actually attended to it and you actually remembered it so yeah semantic memory takes conscious effort to remember episodic doesn't really at all and you argue that ultimately what schools are trying to do despite the fact that much of what we consciously remember about our schooling experience is episodic in nature what schools are actually trying to do is to produce semantic memories. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with episodic memory. It's not like a bad thing. It's just not so useful in terms of doing the things that schools want uh, students to be able to do, which is to uh, leave at the end, ultimately able to think critically and creatively about stuff. And in order to do that, we need to build semantic memory. And the reason why that's superior for those kind of tasks is because it, it's much more uh, flexible and transferable than episodic. 
and if I can just explain why that is, with your episodic memories, they're very tagged with your with contextual cues. So you remember, if you're remembering something, you remember all sorts of other things that go with that, like where you were, what the noises were, who you were with, how hot it was, et cetera, et cetera. So because it's tagged with those contextual cues, then in order to remember it, you generally need those contextual cues to remember it, or sometimes you remember the contextual cues rather than the actual thing. And uh, anyone who's taught anyone will probably be really familiar with this, that you teach a lesson, and then the next day you say, hey, do you remember what we were learning yesterday? And, uh, and, the, and the students will tell you all sorts of things about the context of the lesson, like, hey, we were using scissors, or Marty was late, or it was really hot, or you knocked your coffee over. Like, yeah, all those things happened. But what about the stuff I was teaching you? And, and they can't remember that. And that's because they've got episodic memories of the event that was the lesson, but not actually the stuff you actually wanted them to remember. Yeah, I thought the uh, aside you make in the article about this being one of the reasons why school transitions are difficult for students was really interesting, that many of those cues are all of a sudden missing, and that makes it hard for them to uh, actually uh, remember what they were supposed to have learned. Yeah, I mean, that's what happens. Is that I mean, ultimately, when a memory is really, really secure and it's really firmly in semantic memory, that's less necessary. But you know, it's not like they're in one type and then they're in the other. There's a sort of transition between the two. So it may be that the student is still relying on quite a lot of contextual cues and not aware that they are, but you move a student even to just a different classroom down down the hall, you know, and they, they, they don't remember it as much, but let alone if you move them from, you know, I don't know, can't your system, junior high to high or whatever it is, then all from high school to university or whatever, then so much of the context is different in terms of the rooms and the people and who they're with and their friends. And they haven't really appreciated how much whatever it was they knew was packaged within in a bundle with all those context clues. So remove the context and what they knew sort of evaporates. It's quite volatile. So let's turn then to the implications for classroom practice. How can educators best produce semantic memory? Well, what you need to do is make sure that you're making your students think hard about whatever it is you want them to remember, which sounds really obvious, but quite often if, if we really dissect our lesson practice, we might be directing them to think hard about something else, like getting on with your peers, which is obviously a valuable thing to do if that's what you want them to learn, but if you, you know, actually that's not the whole point of a lesson, it's to add fractions or learn the capitals of Western Europe or whatever, then that's what they need to think about. So it's about making sure lesson design gets them to think hard about what you want them to learn and not be diverted by unintentionally sabotaging the learning by getting them to focus on sort of complicated practical stuff. Uh, so for example, if we want students to learn something in science, then if they're doing a, an, an experiment, then what they will remember is the physical doing of the experiments. Now, there's a time and a place for that. It's not like never do experiments. But if, the, if what we thought was, I want them to know about friction, 
And we thought, well, we'll do this experiment which will demonstrate friction and then they'll know about friction. Probably they won't. Probably they'll remember, oh, yeah, we got lots of different surfaces and we got some carpet and we got some lino and we got some, I don't know, glass and, and we put the car on and, and and they'll remember the stuff, the doing bit, but they won't remember, oh, yeah, and that's called friction and the glass had less friction than the carpet. That bit will be lost, probably. I mean, this is on balance. It's not like a one-to-one correlation that will always work but if you're betting and having a good bet they're much more likely to remember what friction is if you get them to think hard about friction rather than doing an experiment to test it that doesn't mean you don't want to do the experiment as well it's just being aware of that so that when you plan you are aware that the practical stuff isn't going to result in memory so I need to balance that in some other way at a minimum, it suggested to me your discussion that the experiment should come after the concept has been taught in a more traditional manner, uh, perhaps as a way of trying to create an additional episodic memory to reinforce what had been learned uh, otherwise. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, again, I'm not saying I'm not being completely fundamentalist about this and saying never, never, never do it first. But generally, I think if you're trying to have a, a really safe bet, I'd say teach the stuff first and then reinforce it in a different context, which we know is good, because if we're doing it in different contexts, then it's not overly tied to one context, because that makes it too episodic, do it in a different context. And if it's something, we also know that um, emotional events are also remembered, but they're remembered for the emotion rather than the thing itself. But that doesn't mean we can't use emotion to cement something that's already there. So, yeah, say using our example of friction, I'd say I would teach it first and then then do the experiments and then press it there. But I'll do a caveat to that. I'd say, you know, this is when we're planning, uh, say, scientific uh, curriculum development, let's look. It's not just what I do in my classroom now, but maybe if I go, you know what, when they're four or five and they're really young, let's also get them experimenting with cars and different surfaces in a sort of episodic way as well. And so we can pick them up in when they're 10 or whatever age it is when they're learning about friction. So that sort of, they've had that sort of embodied experience way back when. Then we're going to teach them about it and then we're going to go back and do the practical thing again so that we can consolidate what they've learned. So trying to bring all the bits of memory in together, working together, but just getting the order right. Another implication you draw in the article is the potential value of revisiting concepts multiple times once they've been taught once. I read it as something of a defense of cycling in the curriculum. Why might that be the case? Well, there's a phenomenon called retrieval practice. Now, this is a concept that's really robust in the scientific literature. It's decades and decades old. And again, it's one of those sort of counterintuitive things that you wouldn't think of, but actually... What makes a memory stronger is the act of refinding it. So when you rubble around in your long-term memory for that memory, it's the act of finding it, finding something you've sort of half forgotten that will make that memory stronger. So in a way, that makes sense because, you know, your brain remembers so much stuff. And if you don't think about it, I suppose your brain goes, hey, that's not that interesting. Obviously, it doesn't want me to remember that. I'm put- well and bungs it on the back shelf somewhere of your long-term memory if i can use that metaphor 
if you think about it and then your brain has to go and find it and bring it back into your working memory, then your brain goes, oh, oh, yeah, she wants me to remember this stuff. And so that memory gets stronger. So that's called the retrieval effect. As you go, the act of retrieval makes memory stronger. So that being the case, when we teach something, it's not enough just to teach and go, oh, that's, we're good to go. They've got friction now. Then what you also need to do is maybe a week later when you've moved on and you're doing, I don't know, gravity, then you're going to go, hey, remember this other force, friction? Or, or not even say, do you remember? Because then you're priming them. Just give them a little pop quiz about friction so that you have to rubble around their memory and find that. And then so that's a week later and then maybe three weeks later, maybe two months later, maybe you know, a term later, a year later, two years later, you keep on coming back just briefly, but crucially, you're not going to tell them, you're going to ask them so they have to do the work of looking. Because it's that work of looking, that retrieval, that primes the memory to get stronger. And how about assessment? You write in the article about the need to distinguish between assessing performance and assessing learning. How can you make that distinction in practice? Well, performance is what we see in the moment. So, like I've been a head teacher for many, many years, go and I'd go and watch a lesson. I think, oh, that was great. That was fantastic. It looked like the teacher was doing a great thing there, and the students were answering lots of questions, or they were writing lots of work, and. Yeah, that was great. And that's what I used to think. But actually what the research literature shows is that, do you know what, just because they're writing lots or answering lots of questions or all seem really fun and engaged, doesn't necessarily mean that in the longer term they've learned anything. They may have done, but there's no guarantee. So what you're seeing in the moment is performance. Whereas down the line, say two months later, if they can still do it, yeah, then they've learned it. So there's are they being cued and is it really recent? So if you remove the cues and remove the recency and they can still do it, then they've learned it. But if, if, if it's highly cued and very recent, that's just performance. There's no guarantee that they've actually learned it if you see performance. And a related topic that came to mind for me that you don't discuss in the article, however, is the issue of students' evaluations of teaching. In higher education, at least in the U.S., student ratings of courses are often the only hard metric we have to evaluate how well we as professors are doing. And I began to wonder whether students evaluate courses primarily through the lens of episodic memory, even if that may not be what's most important. I bet they do, and I think that's really counterproductive. Because actually what you want to do to make them to really learn well is to think hard. And actually, humans, we resist thinking hard because, you know, it's hard. We'd much rather do something that's a bit more diverting. So, you know, an episodic lecture that's fun and engaging and, uh, you know, gets, gets us um, enjoying things. That may be fun in the moment, but it's less likely to result in long-term learning. The caveat to that is, of course, a lecture that's totally boring and totally dull, all that will get us thinking about is how boring it is. So, I mean, that's just as bad. I'm not saying, yeah, that's a license to bore students to death. No, you need to find the sweet spot between the two when the stuff is uh, that you're delivering enables 
students to really think hard about whatever it is. But it won't necessarily be the most fun and amazing uh, experience ever, but it will be worth it because they'll learn more. So our efforts to promote engagement can backfire, but we shouldn't avoid engagement at all, is what you're saying. No, I mean, you know, it's no license to be deadly dull. <laughs> that, that, being deadly dull is, is just as bad as being uh, having too many bells and whistles and fireworks going on. You know, the point is you want to have the material you present should be challenging enough that you have to think hard about the material. You shouldn't be thinking, wow, this is so exciting. And nor should you be thinking, this is so dull. I think I want to stick pins in my eyes. Because, you know, then you're not thinking about the, uh, the learning either, are you? So having talked about the value of promoting semantic memory, uh, I want to close by asking you about the possible value of episodic memory for a different reason. Uh, you know, could it be that the field trip to the museum or the outdoor learning experience, for example, has value in and of itself, independent of its role in producing formal learning? Uh, and isn't that yeah. something that we should yeah. be sure not to lose? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. It's not like, as I think I said early on, like episodic memory is not bad. It's really valuable. It's really important part of being human. It's not bad at all. And it's something, it should be part of our repertoire. It's just being aware of the limitations of both, of both kinds of memory. And yeah, going on a field trip, going to a museum, going out to see the ocean or something. These can be really valuable experiences of themselves. And particularly for in, in a school context, uh, um, for some students that don't get that kind of experience in their home life, then it's even more important for us to do those sort of things. But even for students that do, yeah, these things have value. Just don't oversell them to yourselves as great vehicles for long-term learning, but they might be great vehicles for other things. My guest today has been Claire Seely author of The Best Way to Help Children Remember Things, available now at educationnext.org. Claire, thanks for being part of the podcast. Oh, thank you, and thank you for inviting me. It's been great to talk to you. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.